All right. (laughs) With all of that said, we are in Exodus chapter 26. We are again going to tackle a whole pile all at once. I think we proved last week we can make sense of this as we go. Our look at the worship of Israel uh, continues. If you are um, a handyman or into construction in any shape, form, or fashion, today is your day. There's good stuff in here. You'll be, if, you, if you like to build sheds and work on your deck and do homework, you know, this, is, this is your day. If you are not, well, there are still lessons in here that are useful and helpful. Now, organizationally, something that we don't normally say, Normally, I warn you that we have a lot of information we're going to cover at the beginning, and then it's going to feel like we ran, and that's intentional. Today's the exact opposite. We're going to get all the way towards the end, and then we have all the info at the end, so we are backloaded. So don't get your hopes up when we're almost all the way through all of this, and it's like 1130. Yep, you got time. You're not going to lunch early, all right? Just warning you early. That way you don't all get excited and start getting antsy, all right? The Lutherans are beating us to lunch today. We have a lot to cover. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So you always got to remember who we got to pick on here, because in the South, there are no Lutherans. Like, if you go to Eastern North Carolina, there are no Lutherans within, you know, like 100 square miles anywhere. You can maybe find some Episcopalians around Richmond and Charlotte, but that's about it. So you always got to get to lunch before the Methodists, because it's the Baptists and the Methodists. But here, eh, the Methodists have weird service time, so they get to lunch before us anyway. So I just pick on the Lutherans and go from there. All right, we will do this like we did last week, rather than try to read all 37 verses of construction detail to you and then go back through it. We will just read it as we go and make sense of it. So if you read ahead, you will know what's coming. If you didn't, we'll just all be surprised together. Sound good? All right, let's dive right in. Moreover, all right, time out. <laughs> we we're going to get fast. We're going to get moving quicker, but we just got to make sure. When a verse, when a chapter starts out with moreover, or do we have new information? No, we're, we're building. We're, content, we're connected to the worship requirements we had last week. Everything that was going on with what we have with Israel's connection to worship and how they deal with God and worship him is being built upon here. It's not like chapter 25 ended. Chapter 26 begins and we have something completely new. We now are continuing on with the same ideas. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. First step this morning. All right, you ready? Everybody close your eyes. I promise nothing bad's going to happen to you. All right? We've got curtains, linen curtains, blue, purple, scarlet, all woven together, and in the midst of that curtain, they have embroidered cherubim. Can you picture that in your brain? Just kind of put an idea of what that would look like. You can open your eyes before you fall asleep. I have enough trouble keeping you guys awake on a Sunday. I don't need to encourage you. (laughs) There you go. So you laugh, but I can always see, and I can always tell when I'm starting to lose folks. So I have a couple people that I use as my markers. (laughs) There you go. That's why we don't pray in the middle of the sermon, because otherwise nobody would come back from it and we'd all be gone. So we've got all these different colors and this beautiful work that's going on. The reason I wanted you to put it in your brain is for something that's coming later, okay? So just make sure you kind of keep that. Don't don't let that drift off into the ether somewhere. Just kind of keep what you have that look in your mind. I'm, I'm, I'm putting my faith in you guys. You got this. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. Now, 
detailed construction. So these curtains are, oh, there we go. Now I'm fading in and out. These curtains are 60 by 42. These are large, they are big, large curtains. Why do we need them so specifically measured? Well, one, because we want them to fit. Two, this teaches us something about God. God is about design and order. Psalm 139, this is one we, uh, we usually read around January. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Jesus building on the same idea in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of us, that's more than others, but that's not the point. The point is, how many hairs are on your head? Lots. I mean, do you, well, no, I don't want lots. I want a number. Thousands. See, you don't know, but you know who does? God, God knows. The specific, how many hairs are on your head? 27. You know, I mean, there. <laughs> that's the idea for some of you, but that's okay. Meaning what? Our worship is supposed to be precise because God is precise, and our worship is supposed to be a reflection of the character and nature of who God is and what he does. This is why my entire life I have never once cared about style of music. Because music is about order. Music is about organization and beauty in conveying meaning. You ever want to have a fun conversation? Um, hang out with some teenagers who are into like, like heavy, unhinged guitar metal. Because, you know, you, you ever seen those concerts where there's always like a dude with his hair in front of his face and, and he's just strumming and it doesn't make any sense? Hang out with one of those kids that listens to that music for five minutes and they'll tell you about why the bass is strung as loosely as it is and why they change the chords and why all of those songs sound the same because they have what's set up as a bass line set up and then there's what's known as a breakdown where the song actually enters into a musical arrangement in order. It's not just chaos, there's actually something to it because you can't have functional music that is repeatable unless you do what? have organization in order. This is why I've never cared about music style when it comes to worship. I care about two things. Are the words we sing orthodox? And for the most part, can it be sung to? Because worship is supposed to be a communal activity. So if we can't sing it at all as a congregation, then we need to find something we can sing. Yeah, it doesn't serve a purpose. I got a good laugh about this a few years ago. There's a, um, a Liberty University is the college in Lynchburg, Virginia that uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church is connected to. And years ago for the Southern Baptist Convention, they had, um, oh, what is his first name? The name just went right out of my head. But his last name is uh, Billingsley, is the guy who leads worship at Thomas Road Baptist Church, large, massive church, you know, a few thousand people. It's her, doesn't matter. But what's hysterical is he was leading worship and, and, and they were doing amazing grace. And then he calls out to everybody at the convention. He has a few thousand of us on the floor. He goes, everybody sing along. And then proceeds to hit a note that you know how many people in the room could hit? One, him. And we're all going, ah. well, I can't go there. This is why I don't love Chris Tomlin music. Because Chris Tomlin's a great singer and a songwriter. But you know what I can't do? I can't sing that note. It's, it's up there. It's up there. And I can't do that. I talk too much, so my voice has been destroyed by too many years of, of abusing it. I can't do that anymore. Song's great, but I can't hit that. 
Music is meant to be communal because worship is meant to be communal when done as a part of the community. It is meant to reflect who God is, order, not chaos. That's why I laugh and joke about, you know, professionally run thing. But let's be honest. Have you ever been to a worship service where you had no idea what was coming? <laughs> I mean, maybe once or twice, but that's just because you were new. Go to the same church for about three or four Sundays. You know what you're going to figure out? You're going to know what's coming next because we do what? We fall into patterns. That's okay. Not only is it okay, it is actually a reflection of who God is and how he operates, which is in an ordered manner. Now, you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 loops in the one curtain, and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. You shall make 50 clasps of gold and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle will be a unit. I got that. I mean, if you told me to take the two curtains and put them together, that's how you would do it. So why do I have to be told this? Where does all of this instruction come from? It comes from God. He is speaking to Moses. I mean, who do you give directions like this to? <laughs> Not even interior director. This is how I give my children directions. I was going to say my wife to me. <laughs> well, same difference. Sorry, couldn't let that one go. I mean, it, like, I mean, I've done this before. Like, if I have something on the end table next to my bed, I can look at Cameron and go, hey, can you go get such and such off the end table? And she'll, she can do that. I have had to do this with the children. Okay, you know where my bedroom is? Yeah. All right, you know the side of the bed that I sleep on? Yeah, there's a table next to my head. Uh-huh. On that table, and I have to list everything that is on the table. Yeah, there you go. And th th I need you to get that thing. And then they go... Okay, and then you know what happens? They go upstairs, they come back downstairs and say, I couldn't find it. <laughs> because why? They're children. And then I get annoyed for a second, go up and go, it's right here, literally, the exact place that I told you. Now, why does that matter? Because, let's be honest, kids, when it comes to God, we are the children. And if not given specific instruction, what will we do? And we will do it our way. Proverbs 14, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. When it comes to the worship of God, God is going to leave nothing to chance and treat them like children. Why? Because we need this. We need this. We need to be told who God is, how to relate to him, and how to understand him. And God does this and records it for us in Scripture. Then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent covering over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains in all. Now, if you've not been paying attention, we just added to this. So we have, the, remember the curtain I told you to imagine? What did we just do? Yeah, but, we, but where do you put the more curtains? And it's a tent covering, which means what did we just do to those beautiful, ornate curtains that you just imagined in your mind? We just covered them. Who's going to... Well, first things first, why? Well, because God told us to, but remember, that's never the way place that we stop. One, we would like to protect them, right? This will serve that purpose. But two, we won't see them anymore. And that's by design. Who will see them? God and one other person. The high priest who's entering in for sacrifice. Is, now, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? Hang on, hang on. 
All, all of our, did all of our VBS kids go to, we've lost all of them, all right, darn it. We could have picked on them for a second. Oh, ooh, tabernacle. Whoa, what was the point of the tabernacle? One of, the, one of the things was what you did in Vacation Bible School. One of the purposes of the tabernacle was a place that we can talk to God. God was going to dwell there amongst his people. Good job, by the way. Someone learned something. I win, right? <laughs> I can break my arm putting myself on the back. So God will be in the midst of the camp amongst his people, right? Yes. Is God in the camp like all the other people are in the camp? And the answer is no, there is a separation. God will be there, but God is not common. He is not ordinary. John 1 helps make this distinction. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, God is still teaching the Israelites. He is beyond them, and he is beyond us but he is still going to be in the camp. Christian, how much sin do you have? (laughs) Yeah, too much, right? Good answer. Always the right answer, too much. God is holy and righteous and pure and beyond us, and we cannot understand him in our finite sinfulness, and yet he calls us to himself. That is a bigger deal than we recognize on a daily basis. Second Peter chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." That's a big deal. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to what? The desires of your heart, the lusts of your eyes, the wants of your flesh. God, the great, awesome, mighty beyond us, has condescended to come down to remove the reproach and stain of sin and by his mercy grant you his promises, the fulfillment of his kingdom, and fellowship with him. This is why when people look at you and go, you mean all you get in salvation is God? What do you mean that's all? You have not comprehended what has gone on. And let's just be perfectly honest with you. Neither have I, because I cannot comprehend what has gone on. But I can recognize how big this is. And this is one of the lessons that is still being taught to Israel. God will be in the camp, but God is not, Yahweh is not the God of Israel, like Molech and Chemosh are supposed to be the gods of Ammon and Moab, or how, you know, all those gods that we listed that God, that Yahweh took out of Egypt, gods of the sky and gods of the soil and gods of the water and gods of the crops and frog gods and bird gods and snake gods and yeah. Yahweh is not like these. He is greater. He is higher. He is beyond. Even when he is in your midst, there is a reverence and an understanding that should be met because you don't just walk up to him. And yet, you're his. And yet, you fellowship with him. And yet, he loves you, provides for you, and redeems you. This is why 
we are to walk differently. This is why the lives that we live matter in the world. Paul puts it in Galatians this way. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, that's a big deal only when you actually understand who this God is and how big this work actually is. And that lesson begins here in Exodus, showing the otherly this, the separation from the people. And yet they're his. And yet he walks with them. Never forget that part, that as they're traveling as a crowd, the angel of the Lord, Christ in flesh, Christ incarnate is at the head of the column, leading the people. God walks with them, and yet he is beyond them. They cannot comprehend him. They are not worthy to stand there, and yet they do because of his mercy and grace. So, what do these curtains look like? Because if we were specific about the first ones, do you think we'll be specific about the second ones? Yes. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall have the same measurements. You shall join 5 curtains by themselves, and the other 6 curtains by themselves. You shall double over the 6th curtain at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is, the, that is outermost in the first set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze, and you shall put the clasps, clasps, easy for me to say, into the loops and join the tent together so that it will be a unit. The overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that is left over, shall lap over the back of the tabernacle. The cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other, and of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent, shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle on one side and on the other to cover it. You shall make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red, dyed red, and a covering of porpoise skins above. All of that to say, 66 by 45-ish. That's where the overlap comes from. So we were, let me, I don't want to say the wrong numbers here. So we were 60 by 42, now we're 66 by 45. Just enough to do what? Cover the backside, cover the edges so that everything is protected and covered and secured. So... Now what? Well, now's where we're going to start to slow down just a little bit, but not, not a whole lot. Then you shall make the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Just in case you thought you had a good idea on design, this is where I said if, you, if you're into construction, this, this is the next part for you. You ready? Ten cubits shall be the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There shall be two tenons for each board fitted to one another. Thus you shall do for all the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for its tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, twenty boards. And their forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, you shall make six boards. You shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They shall be double beneath, and together they shall be complete to its top, to the first ring, thus it shall be with both of them, they shall form the two corners. There shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. I am so inept at construction, I had to look up what a tenon is. Because I'm looking at my NASB going, I did shop class literally 27 years ago. So I, I, I've forgotten everything they tried to teach me. 
You know what I remember from my shop class in eighth grade? When my shop teacher was teaching us how not to use the bandsaw, and he goes, don't put your fingers in, and he took a board that was about an inch square, and he goes, and he smacked the blade with it, and the board got cut in half, and part of it went flying across the room. He goes, this is bigger than your finger, and he just kept hitting it and cutting chunks of the board off. I'm like, all right, so lesson nerd, don't karate chop the bandsaw. I don't think I needed to be told that, but, you know, I will take it. There, there, there's my shop memories. <laughs> no. All right, what's a tenon? It's part of a mortise and tenon, meaning the boards are joined not through nails or screws or any other mounting. They are joined through fit. So there's going to be a hole in one and a notch in the other, and the two boards are thus put together so that they lock in. Clark's over there doing it with his hands, probably doing a better job. So if you want to understand this, what you've just learned is go ask Clark at the end of the service, right? <laughs> it is. It's going to fit together basically the way puzzle pieces would fit together. Now, 15 by 2 is about what these boards are. Why are you fitting them together in this manner? Well, one, it's actually fairly sturdy. All the boards apply weight to one another. They sock it in. They basically create a unit. Once they're put together, they form like a unit. It's, it's well done. That's one. Two, this would be beautiful construction. I mean, this is good craftsmanship. This is seamless work. You don't have splinters hanging out. You don't have random nails or, you know, wood glue or anything like that that you got to sand off. This would look nice as it is assembled. Third, though, and this is the big one, you can take it apart. <laughs> you ever had that moment when you're actually putting something together and you put a screw in the wrong place? Got to do what? Got to take the screw out. And now I got a hole in a board that I didn't want to be there. If I'm joining it and I need to take it apart to move it later, what do I do? I just start on one end and start taking them apart, and I get to the end. I can move this. Portability was important for the tabernacle. You say that three times fast. Exodus chapter 6, remember what's going on here. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What's going on? We're still in the middle of the wilderness. Moses is up the mountain. Everybody else is down the mountain. They've received the covenant. They've received the, uh, the law. They know what they're supposed to be doing. But are we where we're supposed to be? No. And it's a great lesson again. If you haven't gotten to where you're going, you aren't there yet. But they need to build this tabernacle. They need to be able to worship. They need to be able to have communion in the presence of God. But they need to be able to move it. Hence the joining. They are being provided for even in their worship by God. We'll come back to that in just a second. Then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one, of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. The middle bar in the center of the board shall pass through from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. This is your support structure. So the bars will be passed through onto the rings, and so the boards that are joined together, which should be fairly sturdy, are going to be reinforced in the middle. Make sense? Good, because I had to look all of this up, because I, I, if you are capable of like thinking about building a deck and like laying it out in your brain, God bless you. I can't do it. I can do puzzles together. I can think about you know, small things in, in space. I can think about maps. 
When it comes to construction projects, visualizing what it's supposed to look like when you give me all the pieces, I got nothing. So this was especially aggravating for me this week. My friends are periodically going, how does that work? What is that? Oh, no, wait, okay, there's a picture. Yay, pictures. Okay, that makes sense. So if you're able to do this in your head, awesome, you're doing well. <laughs> Sorry. I'm willing to admit my shortcomings in this regard. What's the point of this again, though? Why not attach better the bracing boards? Again, portability is key. Will this be supported and sturdy? Yes. They need to be able to take it down. Ezekiel chapter 34. We're getting an Ezekiel reference today. Thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord have spoken. This is why the tabernacle has to move. When is God shepherd over his people? Always. Where is God shepherd over his people? Everywhere. How will Israel learn this lesson? Tabernacle. That God goes everywhere they go. This is why they had to be encouraged when they got to the end, because they're basically being told, God will fight for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. It is the Lord who fights for his people. They are his. He is theirs. Everywhere they go, he will be there. It was a lesson then, Christian. It's a lesson now, Colossians chapter 1. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints." To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Where was Paul willing to go? Anywhere. Why? Because that's where God's people would be. Where would God have power? Everywhere. Everywhere Paul went. Where would the gospel bear fruit? Everywhere that Paul went. What nation was outside of the reach of Christ? None. Which is why Paul's answer was, put me someplace and what am I going to do? I'm going to preach Jesus. Give me all the available benefits of the world and what will I do? I'll preach Jesus. Take away all the available benefits of the world. You know what I'll do? I'll preach Jesus. Doesn't matter where. Doesn't matter who's listening. Doesn't matter what you give me. I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. Because that's the job that he's given. And it doesn't matter what happens between here and there. That's the charge. Christian, this is how we're supposed to walk. When the world says, hey, let's do this over here. 
Or, hey, let's do this over here. We say, no, I follow Christ and him crucified, denying the things of the world, denying the lusts of my flesh, denying the sin that so easily entangles and following after Christ. Why? Because I have that power to do so, aided by the Holy Spirit, trusting in the mercy and grace. And when I find myself over here, well, does Jesus's grace cover this place too? Yes. Does Jesus's mercy cover this sin as well? Yes. It's the great lesson of 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. Paul tells you this long list of sins that will never inherit the kingdom of God and then says, oh, by the way, that was you. (laughs) And what are they? Inheriting the kingdom of God. We've talked about this before. It doesn't matter where we've been. It matters where we're going. It doesn't matter where we were. It matters where we are. We persevere to the end because Christ is has persevered to the end. We walk the path that he lays out because he has empowered us to stand there. We seek after the good things of the gospel because we already stand in grace, mercy, and truth from Christ. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That starting point is recognizing how we got here. What's your initial step into the gospel? Repentance. Turning from my sin, trusting that Christ's work covers it, that his blood washes me and makes me whole, and that he will empower me to continue on. Therefore, 20 miles down the road, when I find myself in sin, what's my first step? The exact same thing. This was Luther's first, um, oh, it just went right out of my head. That hadn't happened in a while. I've been doing so much better. The words have been there, and they've stayed there, and this one just went. Ooh, the 95 Theses, Luther, Luther's debate against the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. When he, talks about the li- when he talks about repentance, he means that Christ means that all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. That was his first point of contention, was that every day we repent of sin. Every day we war against it, and every day Christ's mercies are new and return to us every single day. That is why we can work moving forward. 1 John 4, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Notice the argument John's making. If God has loved us, how should we act? With love towards one another. See, laws of logic, law of inverse. In order for a supposition to be true, what must also be true? The opposite supposition. So, if God has loved us, we ought to love. If God has not loved us, (laughs) what should you expect? Big trouble. Big, big trouble. We ought not to love. Why? Because we don't know what it is. Um, Christian, welcome to the world. Welcome to the world. Now, can they love a person? Can they love a pet? Can they demonstrate? Yes. But can they understand and appreciate the depth of that love and the understanding of where it comes from? The answer is no. Can pagans do charitable work? Yes. Pagans can open hospitals, give money to charity, do good things, not kill each other, not steal from each other. But can a society built on their values and ideals forsake those things? The answer is no. That's what's being talked about. Always remember that Christianity and your Bible, Old and New Testament, assume that you actually live amongst other people. See, 
We forget that because we are, we are good Clint Eastwood-influenced Americans, right? I tell you Clint Eastwood, what do you immediately picture? The dude, cigar, hat, cloak on the horse, right? Who's with him? Nobody. Nobody is ever with Clint Eastwood in the Westerns. Who's he get to shoot? Everybody, because nobody's with him. You don't have to worry about him shooting anybody on his own side. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Same guy. Who's with him, right? Same thing. Get off my lawn. We've been influenced by that as Americans. We think life is about what? Individuals. That we are an island unto ourselves. And while you are on occasion, guess what? You aren't an island. Go to Walmart by yourself. Are you an island unto yourself? No. The way that I act, the things that I say, the things I take off the shelf, the things I don't take off the shelf, influences and affects other people. I live in a world. I live in a community. If you don't believe me, go out on the interstate, drive the speed limit, and then just slam on your brakes for a second and then speed up again. You know how many people you just affected? Miles. That's why they've actually done studies on this. That's why when you're driving, you ever had that moment where everybody slows down? And I mean, you go from going 80 miles an hour and all of a sudden you're going 20 miles an hour? And then you go 20 miles an hour for half a mile, and then everybody speeds back up, and you look around, you're like, there's not a dead animal on the road, there's not a police officer. It's a caterpillar effect. That event could have happened miles ahead of you, hours ago, and it's still working its way through the caterpillar of traffic. <laughs> That's why when you get to the thing and you're like, oh, we're speeding up now, but there was nothing. You're right, there was nothing. Ten hours ago, there might have been something, and the traffic's just been thick enough long enough that it's just worked its way down the line. Welcome to the world that you live in. Your Bible assumes that you will be amongst believers and amongst unbelievers. Therefore, you are taught how to treat one another, how to evangelize, and how to treat the non-believers, how to bring your values to bear into the world, what you are to proclaim and how you are to proclaim it. Because again, a society built, a community, no matter how small, built on pagan Unbelieving foundations cannot uphold morality and goodness. It has no foundation by which to do so. It is the definition of sinking sand. That is why this is given like it is. Because Israel is being prepared to live for God as a people in a world that is not for God. They will be the testimony of Yahweh to the nations. Um, does that sound anything like a commission that we might think is great at the end of, you know, a gospel somewhere? You know, Bueller, Bueller. Go make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. In other words, everywhere you go, he is there. Everywhere, everyone you will meet is under his authority, and there is nothing that is outside of him. Uh-oh, somebody's getting pinged again. All right, shall we continue? <laughs> then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan you have been shown on the mountain. Oh, oh go back, go back. We're going to hold there for just a second. There we go. Got a pattern started. <laughs> Again, where is this from? How much input does a person get to this? Remember how the instructions have been given? All right, take the curtain, put 50 clasps on it. 50 on one side, 50 holes on the other side, join them together. I mean, again, how you would give children instructions. Why? 1 Corinthians 1. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, 
the reason why you're constantly reminded this is God's idea is I don't care how good the craftsman is. I don't care how brilliant his work or how amazing his mind is for design. You know who he isn't? He's not God. Duh, right? And who do I want building and whose design do I want for God's tabernacle and God's worship? I want God's design, not man's. That's why this matters. You shall make, now you get to move ahead. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, and it shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. All right, so we've got a veil. What does a veil do? <coughs> Cover something. So are we hiding something? Not quite. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. All of that to say, we are not hiding, but we are still separating. So even in the midst of that tabernacle, God's throne has been set aside. Once again, why? John 1 again. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. See, there's going to be a temptation if I told you that in that tabernacle, the place where sacrifice is made, the place where Moses meets, in that place is God. He is here and he is amongst us. What's going to be your temptation with all the stuff in that tabernacle? You're going to want to go see it, but that's, that's going to be the minimal thing. How are you going to treat the stuff? No, you won't treat it with reckless manual. You'll do worse. You'll think it's got power. There's no examples of that in Israel's history at all, is there? There's maybe not a time when, you know, like, you know, a useless priest named Eli has a couple of sons who are getting their butts kicked by Philistines in battle and says, you know, maybe if we go get the Ark of God and we bring it into battle with us, that Yahweh will fight and defeat our enemies. And then they lose the tabernacle in battle to the Philistines because God laughs at them. That would never happen in Israel's history, right? Not even a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, read 1 Samuel, it'll do you very, very well. See, the temptation would be to make this lesser than by elevating the stuff. The minute we treat the stuff as holy, what have we stopped doing? We've stopped treating God as holy. It's not about the ark. It's not about the tabernacle. It's about what? This is again why I say I've never once cared about worship uh, music style in a church. I have things that I like, I have things that I don't like. Can I follow along? And does it rightly praise and worship God? And if the answer to those two things are yes, you know who's got to get out of the way? Me. The things that I like and the things that I love. Believe me, I have been in worship services with bands, with pianos, with organs, banjos, harps, bluegrass, country, you know, rock, gospel, gaither, you name it. And you know what I can do? I can praise and I can worship because it's not about me. It's about the God that we are together to worship and praise. And when I forget that, I have forgotten who God is and what this is all supposed to be about. 
that's part of the lesson here to Israel. We're going to separate this out because I don't want you thinking that this is something common, but I also don't want you thinking that the thing is the thing. The ark is not the means. God is the means. We have to learn about this because otherwise the temptation will be to treat it as something else. Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's why the separation. This is not about the ark. This is not about, ooh, I get to go to the tabernacle. This is about God is with his people. And he accepts our sacrifice and he accepts our worship and he provides for us and he cares for us. How blessed are we amongst the world? How awesome is this work? That's what it was about then, Christian. That's what it's about now. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia, for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Just in case you get a little tempted, we're going to have more than just a veil. We're going to put up a, an air quotes door, as much as there's a door here for the tabernacle. Now, why do we still care? I've tried to give answers as we've gone through, but at the end of the day, how our worship is influenced is going to be determined by what and how we think about God. Whether or not we esteem him rightly or whether or not we esteem ourselves wrongly. That's the danger and the temptation. Hebrews 13 puts it this way. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in high honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Use a Christian word to summarize those instructions from Hebrews. Got one? See, I would call it sanctification. Walking in godliness. Whether it's those who are no longer in your midst or those who are very much in your midst. Whether it's those who have been arrested or those who are still working. Whether it's with your marriage or whether it's how you understand God. Walk faithfully. Why? Well, the entire argument of the book of Hebrews up until this point has been what? That Christ is the priest who offers the good sacrifice. 
that Christ, the eternal Son of God, better than Moses, better than the angels, has instigated and inaugurated for his people a new covenant on his blood. And he is worthy of reverence and awe because he is God and because he has redeemed a people. There you go. There's the first six chapters of Hebrews summarized for you. Aren't you happy now? Go team. (laughs) Therefore, this is how you are supposed to live. Now, what drives sanctification? Better yet, I'll ask it this way, because this is something we, I haven't said this in a while in here, but I just said this in Sunday school. So Sunday school people, I'm picking on you. You ready? Sanctification is part of an action. It's what I do, the decisions that I make. What influences my action? Our hearts and our minds. Remember, this is our, I don't want to change what you do. I don't want to change how you act. I want to change how you think, which will change how you act. And if I want to change how you think, I have to change what you want. Because what you think about is going to be directly tied to what you want. When I get your wants, your desires aligned with Christ, you will think about how to fulfill those wants. You will therefore think about Christ. You will therefore, because you are thinking about Christ, act in ways that demonstrate you are thinking about and desiring Christ. In other words, your wisdom and your knowledge. The beginning of that is an understanding of who? God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a fool's despise wisdom and understanding. A right understanding of the God we come before energizes how we think and therefore changes how we live. If we misunderstand who this God is and what he has done for us in light of that, we miss everything. Um, It's a great counseling book. I don't think I have it anymore. I think I gave it away too long ago. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. It's um, Ed Welch is the author, a Christian counselor, and his argument is most of your sin problems are generated from the fear of man. You are more afraid of what the world thinks than you are of what God thinks. What's the cure? Be more afraid of God and his judgment than you are what the world can do from you. Isn't that kind of like everything Paul is telling the churches? (laughs) Whether I have a lot, I serve God. Whether I have a little, I serve God. Whether they tell me no, I serve God. Whether they tell me yes, I serve God. In other words, what do I do? I just keep doing the same thing regardless of what goes on around me. Almost like if I'm anchored to a solid rock or something. You know, it's not like there's a bunch of Bible verses about that either doesn't matter because I rightly understand who he is. That begins for the Christian the same place it begins for Israel. Right here, understanding what the tabernacle is meant to do. The tabernacle, by its very design, is meant to teach God's people about God. Excuse me. It's meant to teach God's people about God and how they live with him. That's what it was meant to do for Israel. This is who your God is that has saved you, and this is how you will relate to him. Christian, the tabernacle still teaches us about God, who he is, and how we live with him. Where is Yahweh God? We know this. Everywhere. How does Israel know that? See, I always ask you this question. Whenever we ask you about an attribute of God, you know, how is God? We know that God is loving. How do we know that God is loving? We look at the history. We know that God is gracious. How do we know that God is gracious? We look at the history. We can see the mercy that he extended to Abraham, the patience that he demonstrated with Jacob, the, the, uh, 
the great mercies that he showed to David and to Solomon and to all of Israel that for year after year, when we're sitting here going, just smite them already and do something, and he just continues on according to plan. We can see his patience and his mercy and his grace and and his love. How do we know that he's God over all the way that he claims? Again, look at the history and look how he deals with the people. See, throughout the ancient world, the mindset was that your deity was God there, he was God over here, or God someplace else. And if you left those areas, you're probably leaving the power of God. You want a great uh, read on that? Go read the end of First Kings, and you'll actually see this in action, because uh, evil King Ahab, I mean, if there's, a, if there's a king who is bad, it is Ahab. I mean, his wife's name is an insult. Like, no one has ever called another woman a Jezebel as a compliment. You're such a Jezebel. <laughs> You're like, oh, thank you. I've done my hair up nicely. Wait, wait a minute, what? <laughs> it's like the equivalent of calling her, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop before I say something that might bother somebody. So I thought of like four words that I don't think would be bad, but you know what? We're just going to skip them. Better off that way. I mean, no one has ever called anybody a Jezebel other than those reasons. Ahab was given mercy by God so that God could teach about who he was. Because Ahab goes into battle, and I, I, I know he's got the order mixed up, so read the end of 1 Kings, it'll do you good. But he goes into battle, and they win, and they have this battle on the mountainside. And so they come back victorious, and then God sends the prophet in, and he tells Ahab, you know, the, uh, the, the enemy over there is saying that the only reason you won is because Yahweh is a god of the mountains. So they're going to try to figure out how to get you down into the valley so they can beat you in the valley because they think Yahweh is a god of the mountains. Therefore, when you go into battle in the valley, I'm going to give you victory there too to prove to them that I am god of the mountains and god of the valley and god of everywhere. And then you get the picture into the enemy's battle camp, and they're going, all right, look, Israel whooped our butts because Yahweh is a god of the mountains, so let's trap him in the valley, and then we got him. And so they go to battle the next day, and they go to battle in the valley, and you know what happens? They lose lose because Yahweh is God everywhere. And that's what the tabernacle is meant to teach, is that everywhere Israel will go, God will be with them. Christian, we have the better tabernacle because we are the better tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Always realize the order there. See, the tabernacle, it's a noun and it's a verb. To have the tabernacle is to have the thing that we've been building. To tabernacle is to dwell. You are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. In salvation, you are sealed by the Spirit. Christ's promise fulfilled, and you are marked for the day of completion of that great work. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Why? Because you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. The precious blood of the Lamb, as 1 Peter puts it. Because you are in, you are supposed to walk a certain way. That's Israel. They have been redeemed from Egypt. They have been purchased by God. Therefore, they are to walk a certain way. The order has not changed because the gospel message has not changed. The tabernacle teaches that as they travel, as they go, as they endeavor to the final kingdom that God will provide for them, that he walks with them. That he who redeems them in Egypt is he who walks with them in the wilderness, is he who will deliver them to their promised land. Christian, 
He who brought you out of sin is he who walks with you now, is he who will bring you into the final kingdom that he has promised. The lesson is the same. And we walk best when we walk with our eyes and our minds open, knowing who God is, that he is separate, that he is other, that he is beyond us and we cannot comprehend him. But knowing that in that, his great mercy and love has been displayed that while we were his enemy, he laid down his life to make us his friend and then strengthens us so that he will bring us into a good kingdom with good promises and a good eternity. Not because we deserved it, but because he wishes to provide it for his children that we now are. If you find a better deal, you know what you should do? Take it, because you won't. That's the path we're supposed to be walking. That's the way we're supposed to be walking it. Not in our strength. Our strength is failure. Our strength is miserable. But in his, because it is his spirit that seals us. It is his son and his blood that inaugurates us. And it is his presence that guides us and his promises that will secure us. And as long as we remember that, we are remembering who God is and all that he has done. And we walk the path faithfully. Let's pray.